0: Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare.
1: Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. Today's episode is part of the ASHB Advantage podcast series, Engaging the Experts, featuring a conversation with a top-level practitioner. My name is John Finikos. I'm a pharmacist, and I serve as the chief of pharmacy at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. I'll be your host for today. Joining me is Dr. Allison Burnett. She is the director of the inpatient antithrombosis stewardship program at the University of New Mexico Hospital, a public teaching hospital located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Allison has worked with the best and the brightest minds in the field of anticoagulation and thrombosis. I can tell you that we have today a clinician, a teacher, a researcher, and a practical manager of anticoagulation in the prevention and treatment of thrombosis. And to top all of this off, Allison is the current president of the Anticoagulation Forum. So welcome, Allison. Thank you, John. Sponsored by Janssen, or Janssen Pharmaceuticals. This podcast series examines the prevention of venous thromboembolism, VTE, in the hospitalized acutely ill medical patients who are at risk for thromboembolic complications. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not approved for continuing education credit, but there will be additional podcasts on this topic available. So uh, thanks for joining us, for those in the audience, and Allison, thank you for joining. So let's get started talking about today's topic, which is currently available treatments for prevention of venous thromboembolism and hospitalized acutely ill medical patients. So that's a lot of words. I have to tell you, Allison, when I started in this business, um, in this population of acutely ill medical patients, 30 years ago, we really thought about BTE prophylaxis. So I'm gonna ask you to open and perhaps give us a little bit of a historical perspective on what you've seen over your career.
0: Well, first of all, thank you, John, uh, for this opportunity and thanks to ASHP to provide just some historical perspective. As you mentioned, what I've seen over my career, I too feel that we've, we've gone a lot of different directions. And when I first started out around 15 years ago, we were really starting to gain momentum towards really having like universal prophylaxis because this was recognized as such a, uh, such a public health issue. And, you know, back in 2008, with the Surgeon General's call to action around venous tumble embolism, it really catapulted us forward uh, to hospitals being required to meet new measures that had been set forth in response to this call to action to implement prophylaxis in most, if not all, hospitalized patients. And I think, you know, many institutions were successful in doing that, but what has come to light is that despite our best efforts in this broad implementation of venous thromboembolism prophylaxis in the medically ill population, uh, when we look at the impact that has had on actually driving down events, we see that it really hasn't had any impact. And this could be due to a couple of reasons. This could be because we're over-prophylaxing patients who are not at sufficient risk to warrant prophylaxis, and perhaps we're under-prophylaxing the patients that are at highest risk. And so now I think we're come to a point where we recognize that instead of having qualitative uh, approaches to this disease state, that we need to think about having quantitative approaches and using better risk assessment tools to identify the patients that are gonna derive the most benefit, incur the, the least harm from our, from our practices. And I think I, sh- you know, I share the same experience with many clinicians, yourself included, in that when we, you know, in our practices within our hospitals, we often only get attention around issues like this when there's some type of national mandate or core measure uh, or some financial punition. And we've had metrics in the past. In my personal opinion, they were poorly designed and didn't really provide much valuable information. And as such, a lot of them have now been retired. And I think we find ourselves in a place where now, a lot of institutions uh, without these national efforts are trying to internally figure this out on their own. And I, you know, clearly what we've been doing with VTE prophylaxis and the medical ill hasn't been working. Most of these uh, patients are having events after discharge. Our lengths of stay are significantly shorter. And so the, the practices that we're trying to implement from seminal studies in the early 90s, late 2000s, that's really not contemporary data. And so I think we need to really revisit this and take another run at it uh, with some of this newer, more contemporary uh, information.
1: Wow, so Allison, my gosh, you touched on so many things there that uh, got got my my juices flowing now. We had gone through the same, I think, trail, if you will, or trip, you know, we used our legacy hospital system to risk score patients. And I think we're very effective identifying those in the hospital we try to use it for extending prophylaxis for those outside of the hospital, those that left. So, recognizing that probably 60% of the VTE events now occur after some sort of hospital encounter. But we're now using an Epic electronic health record, and we're back to, I think, what you just described is not discerning uh, risks. So, let me ask ask you what what's the contemporary practice for pharmacists? Do we or use a user risk assessment model. If we do, which one? You know, which one do we choose?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And of course, you know, pharmacists are an integral part to a multidisciplinary team. Uh, and it takes a village to really make sure that our patients are getting uh, appropriate uh, VT prophylaxis in the hospital, and then you know, certainly if they if they meet eligibility criteria uh, after hospital discharge. You know, there's several VTE risk assessment models. Sometimes you'll hear them abbreviated as RAMS um, in the literature. None of them have been studied extensively through impact analyses, meaning there's not evidence to show that if you consistently apply a particular score that you're going to be guaranteed to drive down events uh, without increasing harm. A couple of risk assessment models that have been fairly extensively externally validated, I think the two that have been uh, most uh, validated are the Padua, uh score, uh, as well as the improved VTE score. And if you look at uh, societal guidelines, including, you know, uh, ACCP or CHEST or the um, American Society of Hematology guidelines, they don't endorse one particular uh, risk assessment model simply because there's there's not evidence to say that one is better than the other. I mean, there's also the Intermountain score and the um, the Kucher score. Yeah. And I think what most of the societal guidelines have taken the position of not endorsing one particular risk assessment model, but encouraging uh, clinicians, including pharmacists, to develop protocols that embed some type of risk assessment model Simply to promote identification of those patients at highest risk. And I think, it, you know, it's interesting after I, w- I, was, I was honored to serve on the, the uh, author panel for the American Society of Hematology Guidelines in 2018. And that's the approach that we took. We just said, you know, here's, here's the Padua, here's the improve, choose something and make sure that you consistently apply it um, to your patient populations and after that guideline came out, there was an interesting survey that was conducted by the University of Vermont, and they sent it out to eight academic medical centers just to find out if clinicians are actually using risk assessment models in their in their actual clinical practice. And it, the numbers were very low. It was only about 30% of, of, of hospitalists, because this survey was conducted amongst hospitalists, 30% of hospitalists were actually using some type of risk um stratification. And interestingly, the majority of the time they were using some sort of internally developed uh, risk assessment model yeah. rather than one of these formal, formally studied risk assessment models. So I think this is something we definitely need to pursue and we definitely have a lot of work to do around this. We need to figure out what what are the risk factors to include, what is the best risk assessment model. But until we can get to that point, we need to do something right now. So I would say, you know, Find a risk assessment model that works for your institution that you can easily embed into your workflow and that you think will have quick uptake and widespread adoption and just consistently apply it to, to try to tease out those patients who are going to derive most benefit.
1: So Allison, you, you mentioned guidelines. And I know I've, I've sat on the National Comprehensive Cancer Network's panel for VT treatment and prevention for a long, long time. Um, and I have to put a plug in for their guidelines. Uh, but I, I know you've contributed, uh, as you mentioned. So where's the go-to spot for the pharmacist? Um, and, and I'll bring up the elephant in the room about COVID prophylaxis, because there are a lot of DT prophylaxis in the COVID patients. Because there's a lot of information emanating and, I think, recommendations on what to do with prevention. So let me start. Is there a go-to location for guidelines or do we wait for the most current guideline to appear? Well, that's a
0: very good question, John, and a very challenging question to answer. As you know, since the pandemic started just a little over a year ago, I mean, several societies scrambled to put together some type of guidance or consensus, including the anticoagulation forum. And I guess my opinion would be, there is not any one single go-to. I think you kind of have to look at what the recommendations are in, in aggregate. And I would say that right now, where those COVID uh, prophylaxis guidelines sit uh, in regards to inpatient prophylaxis is that it seems that, you know, most, if not all COVID patients weren't prophylaxis, so should, we should be thinking about that. I think the bigger controversy is like what intensity of prophylaxis. Um, the most recent guidelines that have been issued uh, from the American Society of Hematology fall in line with several other uh, guidance documents and, and state that, you know, simply based on lack of evidence, we should probably just be utilizing standard intensity BT prophylaxis in these patients. And I think this has been supported by recent emerging evidence from the multi-platform randomized controlled trials that are being conducted by the NIH and other entities. Uh, I do think that the the information is going to start coming out at a more rapid pace. And so I guess because I can't give you one go-to that pharmacists should rely on, I would say take an aggregate look at what's out there. You need to have an internal conversation within your own hospital because there has to be consensus on uh, what actions are going to be taken. If you don't have that, and I've had this experience at my own institution early on, People will go rogue and they will start uh, making their own decisions about how they're going to practice. And so you really want to have a a regular focused conversation. You want to keep your finger on the pulse of the information that's coming out and develop some sort of standardized protocol that is agreed upon uh, in a multidisciplinary fashion. But uh, keep your ear to the ground for everything that's coming out because things are going to probably be rapidly changing. We're all going to need to pivot to some some degree regarding our COVID protocols, including uh, you know extended prophylaxis after hospital discharge, because I think this has been a, uh, a topic of hot conversation. Should we be providing our COVID patients with post-discharge prophylaxis? I don't know that we know the answer to that right now. The evidence that we currently have, which is just a couple of small retrospective single center studies, suggests that the post-discharge incidence of VT isn't really any higher than in non-COVID patients. But fortunately, there are a couple of ongoing randomized controlled trials that I think are going to provide better informed answers uh, and to provide us guidance and practice.
1: So I'm going to tell you, Allison. when I look across the alphabet soup of organizations, many of my subspecialists are on or contribute to those panels. And so I find it fascinating that you can talk to four or five different people and get four or five different opinions in one single center. I think that's where ASHP really helps with programs like this, to be quite frank, and that we can communicate uh, to folks that you need to navigate through a multi- multitude of different societies. And then, you know, politics are all local. So there may be decisions at your own hospital that fit your facility for help. You talked about extended prophylaxis. So I go back to the Exclaim trial where we extended anoxaparin administration to medically ill patients outside the hospital, showed a reduction in venous thromboembolic events, but also an increase in bleeding. Mm -hmm. We contributed to the ADOPT trial with low dose of Pixaban um, in medically ill patients. No difference in VTE events after discharge, but an increase in major bleeding, so no uh, net clinical benefit. And then we had two trials, Magellan and Marina, that uh, designed differently, but looked at, at river Roxaban, both starting in the hospital with Magellan and then starting at discharge with Mariner, both giving us really, I think a different picture, uh, if you will, of extended prophylaxis and the rates of venous thromboembolism. But can I talk to me a little bit about what we do? These are trials now that are approaching five to 10 years old. And so what's the contemporary practice, I think, uh, or I'll ask you with with these medically ill patients and extending prophylaxis.
0: I have a clarifying question for you. Are you speaking sp- just in general in generalities, or in, in the COVID
1: population? I, I no. Let's talk. Let's talk in the in the general population first, Allison. Okay. Sure. And I, I didn't include the apex trial simply because we don't have the be available anymore. I suppose I should mention that as well. But yeah, in the general population, yeah, what's the pulse?
0: Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think my experience, which is, you know, the experience of most clinicians out there, is that extended prophylaxis hasn't been, you know, widely embraced or adopted into practice, I think for a variety of reasons. You know, if you look at the trials that you mentioned, uh, those trial designs evolved over time, right? And so the early trials, Exclaim, Adopt, uh, Magellan, they didn't really use I guess, a formalized risk assessment to identify those highest risk patients. And they also didn't have, you know, focused intent on excluding patients who may be at increased risk for bleeding. And so I think that's why, you know, maybe we saw you know, no benefit with the EXCLAIM trial and the ADOPT trial. And any benefit that was seen uh, in those trials, I- including the Magellan, uh, was offset by this, this bleeding issue. And then along came APEX uh, with, with Batrixaban and also Mariner uh, with Rivaroxaban. And because, you know, of better trial design and being more uh, cognizant uh, of, of, the, of the balance measures of, of bleeding, et cetera, I think we made a move in the right direction. And I think, you know, we saw a benefit, uh, even though, you know, for example, in the Mariner trial, the primary uh, efficacy outcome of, you know, a combination of VTE and VTE-related death, they weren't able to um, achieve that primary outcome. But if you look at the secondary outcome of of symptomatic VTE, they were able to significantly reduce that. Um, They also, importantly, in, in the Mariner trial, as in the APEX trial, there was no increased major bleeding. So this was a major evolution and kind of gave us a signal that maybe we were moving in the right direction. And then, you know, I, I think as we were finishing writing up the, the 2018 uh, uh, guideline from American Society of Hematology, Mariner hadn't been published yet. Apex was had just recently been published. And when we did, you know, meta-analytic data of those early trials, the number needed to treat and the number needed to harm were very, very similar. And so it wasn't a slam dunk, and because uh, because of that, the guidelines, you know, didn't endorse um, extended VTE prophylaxis, and you know I think that has has a lot to do with why it, it hasn't been widely embraced. But I think it's also a big lift, right? If you think about if you think about the early trials in VTE prophylaxis, the prevent, the metanox, uh, the Artemis you know, those patients got six to 21 days uh, of inoxaparin yeah. as, you know, their standard duration, right? And now our lengths of stay are like three, four days. And we never even moved into the realm as our lengths of stay were shrinking over the years. We never even moved into the realm of consistently applying those proven strategies of, of six to 21 days of prophylaxis. And so, you know, I don't know that it's all that surprising to, you know, have Clinicians not readily adopt applying, you know, 30 to 45 days of, of VTE prophylaxis. It's a, big, it's a big leap based on, you know, incremental, very incremental benefit and also the logistics and the operational challenges of trying to get these uh, risk assessment b- models embedded into workflow, particularly like the improve, which, you know, was done at discharge, getting D-dimers on these patients to make sure you're selecting the appropriate patients, there's a lot of time, effort, cost, and, and resources involved with that. And I just think all of that collectively has led to you know, this very minimal uh, adoption of post-discharge prophylaxis. But I, th- I think we are making some important progress. Again, what we've been doing uh, has not been working. And so we have got to continue to explore this and find the what I would call the, the quote-unquote sweet spot. Uh, how long do we prophylax these patients for? Uh, And clearly, uh, at least part of that's going to have to be in the post-discharge setting as long as we can correctly identify those patients.
1: I helped enroll patients in the ADOPT trial. um, And you couldn't be more accurate in terms of the time and resources that are required to identify patients, find the risk factors, laboratory testing. And then, you know, in today's day and age, if you do decide to write a prescription, You know, making sure you can get that into the hands of a patient and provide some sort of surveillance. I'll come back to that in a in a second. But uh, I I think you're spot on. There's some barriers here that I think we need to overcome. But I haven't given up yet. I haven't given up yet. I've been too embedded in this to say that we're going to stop because I still see patients with complications after they leave the hospital. So to your point, there's got to be a better way of identifying patients and distilling those that truly need, you know, this anticoagulant available in low doses. Let me switch gears to COVID. And again, we've got a number of organizations that um, have weighed in on post-discharge prophylaxis. And I'm going to ask you, for COVID patients, is there a role right now? or Are we still sorting things out?
0: Well, I I definitely think we're still sorting things out. And I think if you look collectively at the societal guidelines that have been set forth, the majority of them will say post-discharge prophylaxis may be reasonable in select patients. You know, very non committal language, right? Taking a middle-of-the-road approach because we simply don't know. And I would say for the most part, and this includes at my own institution, is that, you know, the approach that, that a lot of people are taking is, Covid or no Covid, if you're going to be thinking about post discharge prophylaxis, you want to make sure that those patients look similar to the patients that were included in the randomized controlled trials uh, like Mariner and Apex. And you know, deviating too far from that may not really be advisable. But yeah, I agree with you. I haven't given up on this yet either, and I think it you know was really. Uh, important, the exercise that they did, taking the uh, you know doing the Magellan sub study, taking uh, five key bleeding criteria and, and applying that to the Magellan population. So this, these were five criteria that were identified through the Mariner study that were associated with increased bleeding risk, and they they took those five criteria, went back and applied that to the Magellan uh, population and reanalyzed the results, and they were able to show not only a, a benefit of reduced venous thromboembolic events, but also a reduction. Uh, in major bleeding events at both 10 and, and 35 days. So again, steps in the right direction. But in you know, in regards to COVID-specific patients, I'm very excited to see the results of the uh, the Michelle trial, which is a fairly small trial. It's intended to be about 300 patients. Uh, but the the uh, active 4C trial, the convalescent arm, looking at a apixaban 2.5 twice daily for 30 days compared to placebo, going to be really exciting to see what the results.
1: Of that trial is, and, and I'll just as a plug say we have prevent uh, HD going as well with rivaroxaban at 10 milligrams once a day. And I'm glad you talked about that sub study analysis because I have to tell you I think this is where pharmacists you know shine. You know if you look, there were patients uh, with cancer, patients with antiplatelet therapy, patients with a past history of bleeding episodes. And what better than when better pharmacists help sort out, you know, the critical patient out of that medically ill population that truly needs, you know, an anticoagulant post-discharge You can facilitate all the steps in their care. So I have to emphasize, you know, once again, the role for us as pharmacists is so big, especially in today's setting, as we try to get these patients through the system at an incredibly rapid rate, which brings me, Allison, to... Your wheelhouse, the stewardship program. Can you tell us a little bit about the stewardship program, what you set up, what you do day to day, and advice for the mere mortals uh, like myself in the audience?
0: <laughs> well, Bert, thanks for the opportunity to comment on stewardship. You are correct that it's a, it's definitely a passion of mine and it's also, you know, big, a big effort from the anti-coagulation forum. Um, and so, you know, I've been v- very fortunate to serve in the role of antithrombosis stewardship pharmacist at University of New Mexico Hospital. Um, I wear, obviously, a couple of different hats. I have clinical duties. Uh, I precept uh, residents and students. I also have administrative duties helping develop policy protocols, guidelines, et cetera. And so at our hospital, the way it's set up is that we basically have a core stewardship team, which is comprised of uh, myself on the inpatient side. We have also, I have an amazing counterpart in our outpatient antithrombosis clinic who uh, drives stewardship from that realm. And then we have a couple of hospitalist uh, champions that are very passionate about antithrombosis. And so we work collectively to onboard and train uh, and groom up the pharmacists across the organization. Uh, We provide the tools uh, necessary to operate the service. And we also uh, have a data analyst and outcomes analyst that help us track um, certain metrics so we can assess the performance of our program and also make sure that we're in compliance with national initiatives like the National Patient Safety Goals and, and any core measures associated with
1: anticoagulation. Yeah, I think I I think that's I think is a organic process. I think you're going to see. I expect just like antibiotic stewardship, that anticoagulant stewardship, antithrombosis stewardship, is going to spread across the country as being a necessary component of patient care in the hospital. You you mentioned the AC forum. Um, I've gone to their website. It's fantastic materials for the practitioner, you want to just talk a little bit and educate your audience about the AC Forum and what they do?
0: Yes, I would absolutely love the opportunity um, to do that. So in case uh, listeners aren't familiar with the Anticoagulation Forum, uh, we are a national nonprofit. Uh, Membership is free, by the way, so please be sure to check us out. We are more than 12,000 members strong. We represent over 1,000 anticoagulation practices from across the country, which uh, is comprised of over a million. Patients. We have, as John mentioned, anticoagulation stewardship is one of our big um, initiatives. We've been fortunate to partner with the FDA in creating core elements of anticoagulation stewardship, as well as a, a baseline or implementation checklist. These are developed along the same vein as antimicrobial stewardship programs. They're available for free on uh, on our website, so please be sure to check those out. And our overarching goal with that really is to show that implementation of these types of programs, like the one at my pro- at my hospital, uh, are feasible. Uh, they they have a good utility, uh, and while they're you know at this point, a lot of it's based on uh, process measures. Uh, it's anticipated that this will lead to um, uh, moving the needle on improving uh, safe and effective use of anticoagulants. And mm-hmm. we're actually participating in a, uh, a mentored implementation program right now called MIDAS. And we are taking our expert board of directors, using them uh, as mentors for five hospitals across the country as proof of concept to show that uh, this implementation can be done. When we gain that momentum, we hope to take that that to the federal partners and hopefully work towards uh, creating national standards around anticoagulation stewardship programs, just like have been developed for antimicrobial stewardship that are now mandated by CMS. And another uh, quick plug for another flagship program through the uh, Anticoagulation Forum is our uh, Centers of Excellence. So if you haven't heard of this amazing uh, resource, our Resource Center now has over uh, 500 uh, clinical resources, everything from society the most the most recent societal guidelines. Uh, to institutional protocol examples. And now I'm very excited to say that we are uh, generating our own internal content. Uh, and the best example of this are our rapid resources. These are one-pagers of distilled information ev- based on evidence whenever possible and when not, based on expert consensus. But really nice, concise resources for clinicians to use. So there's so many other programs that I could go on and on about, John, our monthly webinar series, et cetera. I know we have limited time. So I would just encourage listeners to go to acforum.org and check us out and, and let us know what you think.
1: Well, I, I want to thank you for that, Allison. I a couple things. Our anticoagulation clinic, which is about 3,000 patients strong, we are part of the Centers of Excellence. So I hope For those of you that are part of an anticoagulation clinic or a management service, that uh, you do set yourself up as a center of excellence. I want to mention, too, that there are a number of other non for profit organizations. We run the North American Thrombosis Forum here in the Boston area. It's intended to be a patient advocacy group, and there's always an opportunity as uh, clinicians to help patients, educate patients, and provide support for them. So I I think there's a whole bunch of areas, yet again, uh, where the pharmacists can get involved in different organizations. So I know we're running out of time, but I I wanted to summarize briefly and just say, if there's some takeaway messages for me, Allison, and there always is, you know, the importance of, you know, what's happening with VTE prevention, I don't think it's a topic that ever grows old. So I need to take a look at what's happening at my hospital and what we're doing. I need that the pulse of what's happening in terms of guidelines around the country and with my local practitioners, whether it's the hospital service or internal medicine practitioners, PAs, and getting a, a handle on if there needs to be changes in what we've been doing, essentially since the call to action in 2008, but there may be some opportunity uh, to look. And I'll put a plug in here for ASHP. They just released guidelines on medication use evaluations uh, and update, and I can think of nothing better than to do an MUE of what's happening in the acutely medical ill population. And then finally, uh, to your point about looking at patients who truly are carrying risks into the community and may benefit from extended thromboprophylaxis with an uh, oral agent, and there are a number of them available now, including rivaroxaban with an FDA approval that may be beneficial if we can identify those patients with or without COVID infection as they transition into the community setting. So uh, with that, I'm gonna bring our program to an end. First of all, Allison, thank you so much you know, for contributing today. You have done so much work in this field. You have done so much to elevate the practice of pharmacists. So I, I think uh, that in itself uh, deserves a round of applause. You won't hear it because we're doing this virtually. But uh, in the background, if you listen very very quietly, uh, you'll hear it clapping. I'm gonna finish and conclude and just say, thank you all for joining us for this ASHP Advantage podcast. Engaging the Experts. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to prescribe to ASHP Podcast through your favorite podcast provider, okay? Good luck, be safe, and thanks for joining today. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage Podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.